This is Tennessee Talks with United States Congressman Tim Burchett. Hello, I'm Congressman Tim Burchett, and welcome back to another episode of Tennessee Talks. Today, I'm joined by Russ Vogt, and in 2021, he started the Center for Renewing America, which aims to preserve Americans' freedoms and fight big government and woke agendas. That sounds like about the entire second congressional district. Um, <laughs> before that, Russ served in the Trump administration as the director of the Office of Management and Budget. Russ was also vice president for Heritage Action for America, policy director for the House Republican Conference, and executive director of the Republican Study Committee. And Russ, I want to thank you so much for joining me uh, today. It's great to have you on the show, brother. We just seem to get better and better as we go, and I appreciate you coming on. Um, tell me Absolutely. about the tell me about the Center for Renewing America, and why do you think it's important? Yeah, when we left office, and we had a lot of things that we wanted to accomplish in the second term, but we viewed that it was vital to keep the focus going on the America First cultural issues. That um, really, for the first time in 2016. Uh, the cartel uh, was forced to focus on because of the candidacy of Donald Trump, big tech reform, border security, critical race theory. And the cartel doesn't like to focus on cultural issues because it they lose power and it has a little bit of risk. But we're not going to save our country without risk. So what we do is we try to focus and win the debate on these issues and put forward uh, policies that can save the country in these really important areas. That's very good. Do you think that the uh, the Biden administration has any real influence over the radical changes in our culture? I do. And, you know, there's there's always been this belief that's hamstrung conservatives that uh, politics is downstream from culture. But I think increasingly uh, culture is downstream from politics. And what the left uses is the bureaucracy to fund their woke agenda. And so, you know, whether it's universities uh, getting grants to target your constituents who care about voter integrity and are therefore tarred as a, a domestic terrorist, you know, or whether it's, you know, the extent to which uh, uh, contracts and grants are required. Think of all the government contracts and grants, and there's always uh, diversity inclusion requirements in there, which is code for a critical race theory. And we wonder why why is our country so woke? Why is the corporate America so woke? And that's the reason why is they're funding it through the government, which is one of the reasons why I've said that Congress needs to really be adamant about defunding the, the bureaucracy, because for every bureaucrat, you have someone that is woke and weaponized against half the country. And that's not a sustainable situation for for this nation. You, know, you touched on a lot our universities and colleges, public colleges and universities, some of the biggest Marxist. I mean, they're openly Marxist members of Congress or publicly educated. AOC has, I believe, a degree in economics from a public institution. My own college in Tennessee, uh, University of Tennessee, I, I receive a lot of a lot of uh, criticism, frankly, from folks. And um, and they it's rooted in some very deep uh, Marxist ideals actually and um and it's it's kind of scary that they're not even hiding it anymore um do you think that a, the uh you think this is a coincidence or do you think this is something that's being orchestrated you know I, we always talk about the swamp and i'm always reminded of an episode of the simpsons which always had great uh political impact i thought it was very prophetic and a lot of times they'd always show this group there's about 12 guys and gals you know leaders of um 
of the, uh, I can't think of the hometown in the Simpsons right now, but um, that, you know, and they sort of decide it, but the swamp up here to me, it's, it's just kind of entrenched. You know, you have a, for instance, the department of defense, which is gone crazy left woke. Um, there's more, more people in the department of defense than are in our department and, and then our entire Navy. I mean, you got more people pushing pencils than are pushing bullets literally. And, uh, and each, in each department, you know, there's an inclusiveness and, and all that other stuff that that's, it has no place in it. And, um, and I wonder, do you think it's a coincidence or do you think this is something orchestrated and who exactly do you think is, is orchestrating this? Well, look, I think the left has had a hundred year, over a hundred year strategy uh, to push what, what we call cultural Marxism, which is a, a variation of, of economic Marxism that's oriented towards dividing us on the basis of race identity. And, and that has been in the water for decades, and it's been part and parcel of, our, of, of what's being taught in our schools, like you mentioned. And it's only recently, you know, that it has gotten to the point in which you see what happened in 2020, which is uh, you have George Floyd, and then people go to the streets and riot and burn the place down. And it comes from the viewpoint, if you think that the evils in the world or the things that you think are problematic in the world are because of society and not not sin. If it's society, what are you going to do? You're going to pull society down. You're going to pull statutes down. And that's a long time coming, but we're now seeing the fruits of it. And once, once you're at the paradigm level, ideas have consequences. That impacts every institution. It impacts the Pentagon. It, it impacts the Department of Education. It we're now doing this really the department of critical race theory. I mean, that's really, if you go grant by grant, what they're doing, it's not about teacher improvement uh, or test scores. It's about, are we creating cultural revolutionaries? And that has been an intentional strategy on the part of the left for decades. Well, now they're, they're implementing it. I mean, they're, they, they're in our religion, they're in everything else. Um, you know, you have major religious institutions that, that uh that push abortion now i mean it's it was clearly something that they they fought and were against and all of a sudden somebody's turning the light switch and you know you have members of certain denominations of religion in in congress and they're vehemently pro-choice or pro-abortion and um and their church body says absolutely nothing um what do you think uh the conservatives could do to make a difference and help maybe restore some of our country's values. I've I've said we need um we need revival, and the I think Rolling Stone magazine, some of the others, literally cursed me, <laughs> which I took as a red badge of courage. But actually, but uh, what do you think we can do? Well, I think you know you hit upon the first priority of our of our organization is to regain a notion in this country, a consensus that we're not a secular country, that we are a Christian nation as founded. And that should be shared by everyone, even if they have religious liberty for another faith, but that to the extent that you don't have that consensus, you have a culture and a nation that just disintegrates. So absolutely, it's that we're always looking for ways uh, to be able to to talk about that importance, because you have people, you have Christians on the right who say, oh, no, we need we need basically, you know, secular globalism as opposed to Christian nationalism. And, and I think that's 
the kind of thing that you know we need to have more people talking about how this country was founded. But I think you're in the middle, to, just to get real practical, you're in the middle of a massive uh, fight and a great opportunity to beat back the bureaucracy that's aimed against the American people. And uh, that's going to come from, from Congress defunding these agencies. You've taken a great start in what the House passed. Uh, who uh, We'll see how it, it gets negotiated as part of the debt limit. But that is a major, major step. And, and activists across the country are paying attention and supporting what you all are doing. Uh, but that is something that is real. You don't have to change it over 50 years. It can be done this year, and you can have a major, major impact. That's, I agree. I hope I hope enough of us stick together. Um, let's talk a little bit about your expertise as the former director of the Office of Management and Budget. As you know, uh, right now, the Republicans are fighting to get us back to some fiscal responsibility, and you alluded to that, you know, doing away with some of these agencies. People have a degree in education. And I'll tell you this, the Department of Education in Washington, D.C., uh, never taught a kid to read at Sarah Moore Green Elementary School in Knoxville or West Hills Elementary School, where I went. And um, those billions could be better off sending sent to the states and let them decide what to do. It says some fat cat bureaucrat up here in D.C. that really has never hasn't been in a classroom since they left their last um, philosophy class or whatever they took. Um, what do you think, um, you know, right now? Of course, we're fighting to uh, get back to some fiscal responsibility. And I think one way is we're sending, of course, unused COVID funds and sending them back. Um, what, what are your thoughts on things like that? So from a, my putting my budget hat on, I look, look at what's necessary. First of all, you got to set a fiscal goal of balance in this country. And that's the only fiscal goal that anyone's ever told me that makes sense to the American people, because that's what they do in their own book, book uh, balancing. And so the, that, that's the first order of business. And then you figure out, all right, how do you get there? And my view is you've got to take on the easiest spending that is most damaging to the American people. So unused COVID spent would category under the easiest spending to cut. It's not going to be spent um, unless they come up with new ways to do it, which, of course, they will do. But if we're past the COVID emergency, and so uh, clearly that's a, an opportunity to rescind money. But then you got to go after what you have a vote on every year, which is the discretionary appropriations. And for far too long, uh, we focused only on the entitlements to the extent that there's been no conversation about ever restraining the discretionary portion. And I view that as the worst. That's the money that I'd rather go in a parking lot and burn it than have it go to these organizations because it's actively harming. So if right. you have a fair housing network in the Department of HUD that's going around and trying to overturn single family neighborhoods, or you have CRT funding that's treating our, our teachers and our students as counter-revolutionaries, uh, that's just awful spending. And it's, it's not about affordability or efficiency. And then the next phase, I believe, is going after the welfare reforms, the social safety net that has become a benefit hammock. And then you get into the harder stuff down the road about Medicare and Social Security and right. reforming them. And, I, and I, I think you can balance the budget without changes to the benefits of those two. Uh, but I think, you know, from the standpoint of Social Security disability, that's really just welfare. Uh, that's keeping people out of the labor force. Uh, and, and, and there's a lot of things. But the problem is we've had 
is that we've had a budget community that wakes up in the morning. People like me, I, I, I pejoratively call it my community, the propeller heads. And we just say, look, if, unless you're doing something on Social Security and Medicare, you're not doing anything. And it's not true. And it's put us in a, in a cul-de-sac where I can't point to any spending cuts we've had in the last 20, 30 years other than a few gimmicks. And so that's why I think what you all are doing in the House is is at this moment still paradigm shifting. There's not a bad deal that's been cut. But as of this moment, you're doing something paradigm is that you're saying we're going to focus on what we can focus on right now with restoring spending caps, deal with a third of what's necessary to get us to a balanced budget. And those caps will require you to go hard at the bureaucracy funding. And the debate that I want to have is I want to say I want to have the moral high ground in the spending fight. I want to make these cultural battles. So when they say, oh, man. We can't do this to the EPA. We then go back and say, you know, the EPA put a 77-year-old Navy veteran in jail for, for 18 months for building four ponds on his ranch to fight wildfires. Really? You think the EPA needs more money? You think the Department of Justice need, with a weaponized FBI needs more money? That's the debate that we need to have with the entirety of the country, and we can do that because the, it, we're not dealing with a big government anymore. We're dealing with a woke and weaponized government. Can, if we send that money back to the Treasury, can the Office of um, Management and Budget spend it, the, those funds, whatever Biden or that his administration wants? Well, for the unused COVID spends, if you rescind it, they don't have that ability. But if you, if if it's just sitting there, uh, there are pretty broad rules for how it can be spent, particularly when we were in the COVID uh, world. You know, there was a lot of flexibility. And so I, I guarantee you the current OMB uh, isn't going to be a break on that spending. But, you know, the, the OMB that we would have been had certainly had tools to be able to restrict what the agencies were doing if we knew about it. Do you think if um, if Treasury and the rest of these people were a little more transparency, that folks would get ticked off and demand that we straighten it up? Or do you think it's just kind of water off a duck's back? Well, I would always argue for more transparency, um, you know, in terms of what, and we're in the middle of incredibly uh, untransparent treasury right now in terms as we approach the debt limit debate uh, and their plans for what they could do to be avoiding any possibility of a default. And there's not a possibility of default. Uh, but yeah, we, they should be more transparent, but this is the cartel, the cartel, gets money from you uh, as when, when you all vote on these appropriations bills, they don't ever give you time to read the bills. They just jam it down the American people's throats. And then they don't ever come back to Congress about what they're doing with the money. And that's how they like it. That's, that's how the cartel has, the administrative state has developed over the last several decades. And you know, I think as you guys are getting a hold of that appropriations process, you're doing a great work to expose that. Good. Uh, President Trump, many would argue that he's not a successful businessman. Others would say he was. But and you'd always hear people say we're going to run government like a business. And that's a little a little both. I've had a business and I've been the mayor of a, of a the lar third largest county in the state of Tennessee. So that's not always the case. And I've been in the legislature in Tennessee for 16 years. And you always um, hear business people say, I'm going to run this thing like a business. But you know the reality, that's just not the case. 
uh, in a lot of instances. But I wondering about your experience with President Trump in some of those meetings where they would say, you know, we're going to run this thing more like a business. Well, you know, I love working for President Trump. Um, it was a, kind of a job of a lifetime. And the things that I think he brought to it was a read of people and a read of the moment and the ability to come into a room and be able to figure out very quickly what's going on there and to yep. assess people's arguments and, and call internally call out when uh, he, he thought they were just kind of talking points and nonsense. And so, you know, people don't have any, the country has no idea how smart he is and how learned he is, particularly when he gets his mind wrapped around an issue. And like, we would take something like ethanol and by the end of it, he, cause he'd have us all argue with each other and the, the different members that would come in to lobby and he'd know the ethanol policies better than the, the corn senators by the end of it. I mean, it's truly amazing yeah. from that standpoint, but also the level of detail that he would go into. I mean, we would be talking about the wall and he'd want to know the type of steel, how far down you're going, how many inches of separation between the two, uh, the, the two pieces that are, are going vertical. Uh, what's the paint? Is it flat black or is it enough? I mean, it, it's a, it was amazing. It was a, a developer's level of precision um, and he just had an ability. And then from my standpoint, you know, he knew how to cut costs and he knew where he didn't want to cut costs. And that was a little bit paradigm shifting for a lot of budgeteers because, you know, I never had an issue with him about in terms of, you know, him not being willing to, to go after waste farm abuse and, and agencies that were garbage. I mean, he, he basically knew all of this stuff was, occur was, was bad spending and it was totally un. It, it was his posture towards it was well, let's cut it. And if Congress had let us cut it, we would have cut it. Um, so it was really a businessman's um, a, appreciation of the waste that accrues in a big organization. And I didn't need to convince him of that. He saw it before I saw it. Oftentimes, or just as, as soon as I saw it. Yeah, when I had a meeting with him, it was dealing with um, the VA. And uh, they had a suicide hotline. I was in there on another issue dealing with TVA. They pay their executive director $8 million a year plus a bonus. And he thought that was outrageous. I thought it was outrageous. And TVA was firing a bunch of employees. And they were having to train their, their foreign replacements. And that just flew all over him. And it just, oh, it ticked him off. And we were supposed to be in there 15 minutes. And like an hour later... He'd, he by that time I think he'd canned two members of the board of TVA and then um and was was sharpening it up. About that time they they hollered no moss. You know they came in there and um I remember um Mark Meadows coming there with one of those rectangular cards which I'm sure you've seen. It says that right. you know um and told the president they've they backed off and and um but anyway and then he asked me so you gonna go in the Oval Office with me? Come on back here, Tim. And I did and. uh I remembered I asked him, I was about the VA and I said, he said, what are you working on? I said, well, honestly, I'm working on an issue with VA right now. He said, what is it? And I said, well, you got a suicide hotline and they're putting veterans on hold. And I said, that's not cool. And he looked at his guy in there, guy walked in and said, is this, and, and Trump said, is this true? And the guy said, I don't know, Mr. President. And he said, what do you want me to do about it, Tim? I said, fix it, Mr. President. He looked at that guy and said, fix it now. And the guy said, yes, sir. You know, it wasn't, 
I'm going to call over there. I'm going to talk to these bureaucrats. I'm going to see if I, I don't want to rustle any feathers. You know, you don't know how this works. He just said, fix it. And that's what that's that's the kind of leadership we need in this kind of garbage, because I get so frustrated with it because everybody's trying to cover their ass and protect their third cousin who has a job over there or something. And it's just it's just ridiculous. And it just goes down the line. And it's it's. But anyway, I can talk about that all over. But um, I, I, this is the part of the, the show where um, I let the my guest ask me a question if they'd like. Do you have anything you want to ask me? Sure. I, I just get your sense of where we're heading on the debt limit, where you think we are in real time. And and yeah. uh, I think you passed a big bill. And how, how much do you think we're going to be able to keep at that bill? I would hope all of it. Um, the reality, you know, I, I remember when I passed the speed limit in Tennessee, I think I was went to 70 miles an hour. I think I asked for 85, you know, <laughs> but I mean, that's negotiating. And um, I think one of my big worries is that we didn't, we should have asked for a little bit of more than we knew we could get mm -hmm. and took it. And then, and then we could come back and go, Oh, you know, but then in reality, we knew we, that's what we wanted. Um, that's the only caveat I have to it. I'm afraid that everything we asked for is, is everything we asked for. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I worry about that, but um, you know, it's in the Democrats hands. We, the house passed a bill, the Democrats in the Senate, if they want to play ball, they can. And, and the press is, of course, hammering us, which they always will. But um, it's in the Democrats' hands. You know, the Republicans did did vote to raise the debt limit, and um, and I did not. I, I was one of four that didn't. I just I come from a balanced budget state. I like paying my bills. Um, I'm just tired of the the so-called negotiations because, in reality, the bill we passed it just reduced the rate of growth. And that's Washington math. It's not real growth. You know, it, we, it's like I said, I send my dollar, daughter down to a little store on the corner Wiggles, and, um, and I give her $10 and she come and she says, well, I'm going to spend 20. And I say, no, you're not. And she goes down and spends 15 and I only gave her 10. She says, look, dad, I saved you $5. And that's, that's sort of the way that's Washington math. And so I, yeah. but I, I, McCarthy's a, I've said this before, if he's, if he's in Knoxville and tells me it's going to snow tomorrow, I'm I'm headed down to Mayo's and buying a sled because he, he he's kept his word to me and he's and he's he's a pretty good negotiator. I feel like, and I feel like at least the public feels like that we're winning and that the taxpayers are being heard, and I think that's important. But um, you know, I will we'll see what happens. I I don't know what the final final mm -hmm. outcome will be, but I hope that I hope we see some true reduction in the future we've got to or we're going to lose everything everything um but russ i want to thank you so much for being here today with me um and thank you for your work you're doing and the work in the trump administration fighting against this crazy woke culture i just feel like we um we are in the midst of something going on right now it could be a great time or it could be a horrible time but it's leaning towards horrible times i'm afraid of the way this country's headed and thank you for fighting a good fight brother and i'm no appreciate you and uh to, to your constituents i would just say you were always a, a great and still are an ally in the fight and so i thanks for the opportunity to be on your show thank you brother well i'm congressman tim burchett and i want to thank y'all for listening to another episode of tennessee talks and thank you all so much for sending me here 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Tennessee Talks. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Keep up with Congressman Burchett by following Rep. Tim Burchett on Twitter and Instagram and Congressman Tim Burchett on Facebook and YouTube.